Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. Welcome to Safer Chemicals Podcast. This episode is all about biocides, as we'll find out more about the topics covered in the September meeting of our Biocidal Products Committee. Erik van der Plasche, the chair of the committee, joins us to talk about biocidal active substances and EU-wide authorizations of biocidal products that were on the agenda this time. We'll also get an update on the comparative assessment of anticoagulant rodenticides and go through a few other topics that may affect companies. Hello, Eric. Good Hi. to have you back. Yeah, thank you. Good um, to be here. Should we get started with the active substances again? Sure. Um, you had an interesting discussion about properties that lead to meeting exclusion or substitution criteria. Mm-hmm. And more specifically, you talked about persistent, bioaccumulative and toxic, or very persistent and very bioaccumulative substances. Mm-hmm. Before we go into more details and why this opinion is important for companies, could you briefly remind us what the exclusion and substitution criteria mean? Within the, the regulation, there are certain substances with hazard characteristics which are very severe, like they are uh, carcinogenic or they have these persistent bioaccumulative and toxic properties. Those are substances we, in fact, would like to ban from the European market and would like to replace with safer alternatives. And that's the exclusion means, in fact, that you cannot be in the market unless you uh, meet a certain condition, for example, that the substance is essential. And substitution means that uh, we want to look for safer alternatives. So these approvals are subject to what is called a comparative assessment where they will be replaced if a safer alternative can be found. Now, in this case, uh, we discussed indeed a document which we prepared as a secretariat, as an agency, related especially to PBT and uh, ED substances, because it happens now and then that we get information after the active substance is already approved, uh, during, for example, an application of a bicidal product, then the company submits information on its ED properties or on its PBT properties. Procedure for that was adopted by the Commission in the CA meeting, and we now had to implement that procedure within the committee. And that means when we get that information, a member state would need to, uh, to do the evaluation And within the committee, we will then uh, what we call validate the status of the active substance. So meaning, will it meet the PBT criteria based on the information or not? We will lay that down in the minutes. uh, And that means that, in fact, the criteria are met. But in uh, principle, it does not have any regulatory impact because only when there is a legislative act from the commission, and that will happen normally under the renewal of an active substance, then the commission has the power to uh, to decide that a substance is a candidate for substitution or meets the exclusion criteria. And the whole issue is uh, maybe, uh, let's say, of a temporary nature because, uh, as you may know, the, the uh, CLP criteria are changing, meaning that uh, in the near future, Uh, the ED criteria and the PBT assessment will move to uh, the classification and labeling regulation. And that means we will no longer assess that within our framework, but that will move to to CLP. 
So I don't know exactly when these new criteria will start to be implemented, but this is something I think for one or two years, something like that. If we move on to the active substance approvals then, um, I'd like to start with sulfur dioxide. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not only assessed as an biocide here at ECA, uh, but also as a food additive by the European Food Safety Authority. Yeah, that's correct. Sulfur dioxide was uh, an active substance we discussed uh, in the meeting of this week. And it, it, it was a long process, maybe to start off with that one, that this uh, sulfur dioxide evaluation took something like four years. And indeed, one of the reasons is that uh, this substance is also uh, assessed within the framework of, uh, of the food safety authority. It's used as a food additive. Uh, in wine, I guess that uh, many uh, of us uh, know that from our, our public. Also, there are other applications. Uh, in biocides, it's used to, uh, for, for the disinfection of wine barrels. So then you have a sulfur tablet which you ignite, and then the, the barrel will be, uh, will be uh, preserved. And the other application we, s we had is that it's used for uh, preservation of shoes. So you have a shoe box, they put a sticker in it, and that will uh, release also sulfur dioxide, and that's used for the transport of, uh, of shoe boxes. But as I said, it was a long, long process, uh, partly due to the fact also that we're dealing with information which is very old. Uh, the, the information we have on the, the, the risks and the hazards of, uh, of sulfur dioxide, yeah, maybe to say that we struggled and also the, the EFSA colleagues uh, struggled on to evaluate that information and come to the uh, what we call the reference values to be used within our risk assessment. In terms of timing, we are first. So in the end, we, we approved uh, both these uh, active substances. So it's uh, this application in the shoebox and in wine barrels. The term we everybody knows nowadays is one substance, uh, one assessment. And yeah, there we, we try to align, of course, as much as possible because we're dealing sometimes with the same data and then obviously would like to come to the same uh, conclusions. And at this point of time, we do not know exactly whether there will be differences between the evaluation from the uh, EFSA agency and us. It might be that there are discrepancies, although we would assume that they will be minor, but uh, we need to see what will be outcome of the outcome of the EFSA panel. And if that's going to mat be materialize, then uh, EFSA and, uh, and us, we will uh, publish a document um, explaining the, the evaluation processes and also explaining the discrepancies if they are going to occur. But uh, that we need to, to wait first what will happen within the, uh, the, the EFSA process. Can I come back to something that you said earlier there? You said mm -hmm. that um, the information that you had at hand is quite old. Mm -hmm. How does that affect your evaluation or assessment? This information was, uh, well, more than 30 years old, I think. And that means that the studies have not been carried out to, to uh, yeah, the, the standards of today. And it sometimes makes also the interpretation more and more difficult. So these are more what we call not standard uh, studies which are carried out nowadays for the endpoints we are having. But these were uh, open literature studies where you really need to dig into the data and see how you can interpret the results of those, uh, of those studies. 
And yeah, there was some quite some information available. Even EFSA did an additional literature review and came up even with some other studies which are not present within our framework. So yeah, the, the interpretation of old studies is much more difficult than a straightforward laboratory study which is contracted out by uh, by an applicant. Okay, uh, that's interesting. Um, if we move on to the next active substance, something that caught my eye was ozone, mm-hmm. uh, which has many uses, for example, to disinfect swimming pools and cooling water systems. You have already adopted opinion on ozone in one of your earlier meetings. What happened this time? Yeah, this is the, the second application we got for ozone, uh, which is uh, yeah generated from uh, from oxygen or produced from oxygen. And again, this is a bit of a complex situation. So we had two applications, one uh, from a company to to the German authorities, which indeed we already adopted uh, a year ago. And now we got the application which was submitted to the Netherlands, in fact for the same substance, so also for ozone. And there were slight differences in the uh, uses where the company applied for, especially for product type 2. In this case, we dealt with uh, laundry disinfection, uh, also with uh, what is called airspace treatment. Uh, while on in the German application, if I uh, call it that, there we had swimming pool disinfection. So that we did not have uh, for the application which was submitted to uh, to the Netherlands. But in terms of uh, the use of ozone in the food industry, indeed you refer to cooling water uh, systems, also disinfection of drinking water, that was also present in this uh, this application. So in terms of the the risks and the safety and the measures which would need to be taken to be able to approve ozone, that was in fact quite quite straightforward and similar to what we had for... uh, for the other application. The main discussion we had was again, and that was also in the German application, on the use of uh, ozone by the general public. Last time there was this debate simply because of its properties. It has some uh, CMR uh, properties. And there has been a debate in the CA meeting in Brussels uh, related to uh, to this topic. Let's say there was an understanding from some of the members and also from the Netherlands, who was the, the rapporteur for this application, that ozone cannot be used by the general public. Uh, but that appeared not to be the case. It all has to do with what is the active substance, what is the biocidal product, are we dealing with pure uh, ozone, or are we dealing with ozone in a more diluted form, let's say, and then it depends a bit on the uh, on the the application and the device which is used to generate ozone. So in the end, what we decided that we let's say did it the same as we did for the other application. No flat out ban for use uh, for ozone by the general public, and that means that the whole discussion will be moved to product authorization and. We think from our side it would be good that uh, we get some concrete uh, examples on how these uh, systems are used. And then, uh, yeah, decisions in the end will have to be taken. What are the consequences for use by the general public? And there are quite, are quite some applications for this. So the swimming pool disinfection we already mentioned, use of ozone uh, for laundry disinfection, 
uh, it's used in refrigerators. Uh, so there, there are many applications where this will be relevant. So uh, the commission will now take the uh, decision from us on board. We will we assume they will straightforward, uh, let's say, move into an approval uh, regulation where ozone will be will be approved without uh, too many uh, conditions. But then interesting discussions will take place once we move to uh, to product uh, product authorization, which is a couple of years from now. Looking forward to that. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add for the active substance approvals? Yeah, we had uh, two other uh, substances, uh, iodine and uh, mess, mesetronium ethyl sulfate. So that's a quaternary ammonium compound. And that's an active substance which is used in uh, in hand disinfection for product type one. Yeah, and there we we came in the end to the conclusion that this substance cannot be approved, and it was not so much related to risks or the lack of efficacy. It was related to the fact that there was insufficient data to come to a conclusion on whether the substance meets the ED criteria or not or whether the substance is bioaccumulative or not. And that's, of course, very important for the assessment of the PBT properties. So there was not enough information available. We need that information because we have to come to a conclusion on these uh, properties. Otherwise, the commission will not be able to take a decision on an approval. So, yeah, the the, the applicant submitted information, but in the, in the end, that was not uh, not sufficient to, to, to proceed. Uh, here we had, uh, in the end, we, we took a vote. There, there, there are minority positions on this one, but the majority of the of the committee was clear that uh, insufficient data available, so we cannot approve this substance. Yeah, the, the other one was iodine, and also the the one related to it is called PVP iodine. That's a what we call an early review. So because there were indications and there are indications that iodine uh, is suspected of having ED properties, the commission asked us to already early on uh, look at whether the substance meets these criteria before the renewal will take place. Sweden acted as the rapporteur. And in this case, uh, the committee concluded, and of course the technical and scientific discussions took place in the working groups, where it was clear that uh, iodine is meeting the ED criteria because its effects on the thyroid. So that opinion was quite straightforward, I must say. But it's an important opinion. Uh, iodine is used in, in many applications, for example in tea disinfection for, for milking cows. Um, we already have uh, yeah, authorizations for, for biocidal products on the European market. So the industry was present at the meeting, was, uh, and I would say rightly so, very interested in what will happen now when we have uh, taken this decision and moved this opinion to the Commission. And, and what the are the con consequences then? Well, the, the consequences in principle are that we cannot have an application or an app. There can be no uh, authorization for the union. So a union authorization is not possible when an active substance meets the exclusion criteria. So that's one thing which is uh, very important. And there are existing uh, union authorizations already granted. 
and uh, even ongoing applications. So that's uh, yeah an aspect where the the companies of course want to get clarity on on what will be uh, happening with those existing authorizations. What the commission made clear at the meeting is that uh, well, if it's now known that uh, yeah iodine meets the ED criteria, it's a, a substance which uh, is an exclusion uh, candidate. There will be a follow-up. So for these type of substances, they need an analysis of alternatives. So we need to look at whether there are alternatives which uh, uh, can be used instead of iodine for the applications which there are. And they will also uh, ask, probably with a new mandate to the agency, to look at the risks now from uh, from uh, iodine. Iodine, as you may know, it's an, it's an essential element and that was also brought forward by the industry and we all of course as, as competent authorities are well aware of this you mentioned that as there is quite a lot of uh, interest on this that companies clearly need some some clarity mm-hmm. is there any expectation when will there be more clarity then well i that will still take some time i guess because let's say first of all the the commission needs to receive the opinion and the analysis of alternatives uh, Iodine is used in, in quite some uh, applications. So I mentioned uh, teeth uh, disinfection, but also in the food industry, iodine is used. So it's used in a wide range of uh, disinfectant applications. And uh, so that's quite some work, let's say, to, to look at that. And we will need to find uh, a rapporteur who will be able to, to do this. Uh, but even more, the, the uh, risk assessment for iodine uh, will not be a simple uh, exercise due to the fact that you have this complication indeed of the essentiality. And we already did that for bromide. There is a lot of information on bromide, but if you look at iodine, there's a, a huge amount of information on iodine. And not only, of course, for human health, but also for the environment. Yeah, I am not able to give you a timeline, but I, I guess it will still take some time before we, let's say, we finalize the whole exercise, meaning the commission will need to decide, uh, do they take uh, legal action or regulatory action before the, the end of the uh, first approval uh, period of iodine and PVP iodine. So sounds like we might also be coming back to this topic at some yes, point again. Yes, for sure. Yes. Good. If we then move from the active substances to something else. I have on my list the comparative assessment of anticoagulant rodenticides. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about this in our December episode last year. And at the time, you discussed guidance on rodent traps developed by the German Environment Agency. Mm-hmm. You mentioned then that these guidance will play an important role when assessing whether mechanical traps could replace anticoagulant rodenticides. Mm-hmm. But what exactly are these anticoagulant rodenticides, or AVKs? As the name already says, it, 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 these are chemicals, very poisonous, who prevent the blood from, uh, from clotting. So that's the mechanism by which they act. So rats and mice, they, they, they simply die from uh, internal bleeding which takes place a few days after they have consumed uh, consumed the bait. And th- they are already on the market for a very long time. And another important uh, disadvantage of these rodenticides is that they lead to 
poisoning in the food chain. So uh, to explain in simple terms, you have uh, a mice which consumes these uh, AVK rodenticides, which is eaten by a bird or is eaten by uh, another animal. And that, uh, by that mechanism, let's say, it's transported into the food chain. And as these uh, are bioaccumulated, that would mean in the end you will see some, uh, some effects of these chemicals in top predators. They meet the exclusion criteria because then of their classification. And that means we would like to ban them and replace them by uh, more friendly substitutes. But that has not been easy over the last uh, decades. And the classification for these substances? Yeah, they are classified for their CMR properties, uh, category one. So that means uh, they need to be banned. And they're also PBTs. Okay. Um, and so in this meeting, you looked at this comparative assessment. Um, what can you tell about this debate? That was uh, yeah one of the highlights of the meeting, I must say. It's an opinion request from the Commission to look at this comparative assessment for, for the whole of the EU. Normally, member states do this on national level, but now, because of the, uh, the, the let's call it the importance of the topic, and it's more effective and efficient to do it at EU level, they ask the agency to carry out the comparative assessment. And this was the first time we discussed it. We already had a draft opinion which we sent out for, for consultation to all the members and also uh, stakeholders we informed in this, uh, in this topic, where there was quite an interest, uh, not only from the chemical industry, so the producers of anticoagulant rodenticides, but also from uh, companies who are involved in the production uh, or sales of, uh, of rodent traps. And there has been really a, a real development in that market. Driver for that is the the digitalization. So that means that, uh, let's say, when you place a rodent trap, of course you would need to see whether the trap has catched a, a mice or a rat. And then in the past, let's say, you would need to visit those traps. But nowadays with new technology, they can put a little camera or they can put a little sensor. So that means that uh, from the office, let's say, you can see whether uh, yeah, the traps have been successful in catching, uh, catching uh, mice or rats. Because it's not the first time we had this comparative assessment. We already had it five years ago. And then, in fact, we had insufficient information to see whether there are uh, yeah, mechanical traps or non-chemical alternatives, as we call them, can be used as an, uh, as an alternative to the AVK uh, rodenticides. But this time we really have uh, information and these efficacy trials were carried out according to the guidance which was prepared and also which is, let's say, agreed on at an EU level. So what we have done is to look, first of all, at uh, chemical alternatives. Over there we concluded that there might be two, but only for, for mice control uh, indoors. And for the rest we don't have, let's say, sufficient number of chemicals to replace the, the AVK rodenticides. But still, when you start looking at uh, practical uh, advantages or disadvantages, at economics, um, at risks, we were not really able to conclude whether the two chemicals which we consider to be an alternative, whether they can really be used as, uh, as an alternative. And I think that's not for nothing because, uh, yeah, 
these substances they have to kill uh, rodents so they for sure have to need to have a certain property which is not always wanted let's say so for some situations it might be be uh, possible but uh, yeah we're not sure over there that was i would say confirmed by uh, by the members they also pointed to carbon dioxide which can be used as an alternative where we think there are some disadvantages this is an kind of a very quite similar to a rodent trap a canister of co2 where uh, which will kill a mice in a certain uh, small box in, in in large infestations we think or in for example sewage systems it would be very difficult to use these kind of uh, traps but uh, yeah th- that's something we will need to look into but the main discussion was around the, the, the rodent traps indeed there were let's say contrasting uh, arguments made by both parties of course the the rodent trap industry uh, they are convinced that these rodent traps are efficacious can be used uh, can replace uh, apk rodenticides for certain uses but maybe even for more although they also say we have difficulty in making information available because they are also used in, in sensitive industries like the food industry or the pharmaceutical industry uh, and on the other hand, we had the chemical industry who had more reservations, if I may say so, uh, on the use of, of rodent traps. And and we were a bit in the middle in a sense that we see those arguments, they come from both sides. And for us, that's, that's quite difficult to how to deal with uh, this. As often, these are, these are statements and I do not talk so much about efficacy. So there was an efficacy trial where they really demonstrated that for mice control in indoors, uh, you, the, these uh, rodent traps are efficacious so according to the guidance we have. But when you then start looking at economic and practical disadvantages, are they more costly or not if you compare them to AVK rodenticides? There are different arguments uh, around the table. Also, the, the last element maybe which I uh, would like to say what we discussed was the use of uh, what we call integrated pest management. So. And I think also that's where we move maybe a bit to that. Uh, and that was for sure also mentioned by, by uh, the chemical industry, but also an association involved in pest control, that there are many, let's say uh, many, there are several possibilities when you have an, uh, an infestation. And you will not immediately start with using uh, rodenticide. You will first make an assessment of the whole situation and then for a pest control uh, officer or company, they said we would like to have all tools available uh, to be able to to manage uh, and uh, combat such an infestation. So they made an argument, let, let's please keep all the possibilities uh, we have, not start uh, banning uh, EVK rodenticides for the users we have, but uh, keep it all in place and then uh, moving towards a more sustainable uh, pest control uh, scheme. So yeah, that's a bit what we had. It was quite interesting. It was the first discussion and we will now need to take all these comments on board and then move forward. And what will happen next then? Well, we we aim to uh, adopt this opinion at our next meeting in November. But there were some requests made by uh, by members and by by the uh, the stakeholders. For example, there is uh, more information coming, and as I already said, there are developments on these rodent traps. So 
More efficacy trials are carried out with different traps, uh, not only for indoor but also for outdoor uh, control of mice. Um, that will become available by the end of this year, beginning of next year. So the issue is, are we going to wait for that or not? We would say, in principle, not, because this whole comparative assessment is relevant for the renewal of AVK products, and that's coming soon. So member states cannot wait too long. They need this, they need this opinion to be able to take decisions on, on the granting of, of their authorizations. But of course, the information is quite relevant to see whether we can also, uh, yeah, have rodent traps as an alternative for other for other uses. And then there was some other requests were made, so there was more information from uh, for some chemicals. Uh, there was a request to look at permanent baiting, uh, whether we can look into that into more detail. Um, so. In essence, several requests to do more work, and we have to see whether we will manage. But uh, yeah, still our intention is to to bring it to the November meeting, and then we need to, uh, and then we want to adopt this uh, opinion. Okay, so we will simply see next time when we talk what happened. Yes. Yes. Before we wrap up. Uh, Maybe a couple of words on union authorizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also had union authorizations, of course. That was the the last two days. We had four union authorization applications. Two were very straightforward. Two others took a long time. Active chlorine, um, maybe not that much to mention about it. Let's say we've seen already many of these uh, similar applications. The main thing which uh, was uh, which was the case for for these two applications was that these were very huge uh, applications. In fact, applications we've never seen uh, before. So in this case, we, we dealt with a consortium. There were more than 30 companies uh, behind it. And that meant that, uh, yeah, we talk about hundreds and hundreds of, of uses which are covered within one uh, application. So that means that the risk assessment became very complex and elaborate. Uh, and all assessments, in fact, from efficacy, from the documents we had, you have this summary of product characteristics, this SPC document, which is normally a document of, let's say, something like 50 to maybe 100 pages, but in this case, it was hundreds of pages. So that was, let's say, complex to deal with in sense of uh, the sheer volume of, of all our documents. There were also many, many comments, uh, not always of a, let's say, a fundamental nature, but also some, let's say, so some corrections or questions which which would need to be addressed by the committee. So in the end, yeah, very happy that we managed to process this through. And I think there we all agree to that uh, it would be good if these type of applications will not be uh, made uh, in the future. And we also think that's not going to happen because there is new guidance on how companies can uh, put together what is called the biocidal product family. This was done under the old guidance where there was more flexibility let's say and in this uh, nowadays it's it's somewhat more restrictive so i do not think we will see this uh, something like this ever again but yeah it was something uh, let's call it of a burden to to uh, members and especially the rapporteur in this case the french authorities who dealt with these two uh, applications intensive meeting i can hear thanks for this summary eric um We'll have Eric back with us after the next committee meeting, which takes place at the end of November. 
Until then, you can find all our episodes at eka.europa.eu forward slash podcasts. Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. 